We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 3 today. We got a lot of ground to cover, uh, so let's get uh, right to work. Uh, we're going to be focusing today on two major events here in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3 and then into uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4. Two main events, uh, two major events. We're going to be looking at the, the collapse of the house of Eli, and we're going to be looking at the capturing of the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, as we begin, and as you guys are still making your way uh, there to the text, I'm reminded of a story uh, that a group of us pastors was told several years ago by a fellow pastor, and and, uh, he uh, was basically talking about how um, one day he's there, he's at his church, it's a rather large church, and uh, all of a sudden the police show up, they're looking for him. Uh, not, not necessarily a good day when the cops come looking for you. They're looking for him, and basically there's a hostage situation, and uh, the guy, who the barricaded suspect, is asking for this pastor by name. Now, if that's not strange enough, this is the second time this has happened in like the past few weeks for this guy. He, he had just had a situation, you know, a few weeks before that. One of his congregants was, you know, barricaded, had, had kind of beaten up his girlfriend, and it wasn't good. And uh, a long story, but basically that resolved, you know, well and without violence, and everything was good. And, um, and the guy, you know, got the help that he needed and all, and the pastor played a pivotal role. And so here it is again. It's going down, and he's thinking, wow, this is, you know, what are the odds? And he goes out, and this is, like, really serious. This guy... He uh, was uh, evidently robbing a local business or something. He had taken a lot of people hostage. And, um, and so then, you know, the, the SWAT team's there, and they're all in their military gear and so on. And uh, this guy had asked for this pastor by name. And so the pastor shows up, and uh, <clears throat> he's there, and, and he basically says to the guys, look, let me just talk to him. Let me just go and talk to him as I know this guy. And they're like, no, 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 you don't, we, you're not, there's no just going to talk to him, he's already got hostages, we don't want him to have one more hostage, uh, you ain't going, but we'll let you talk to him, you know, through the, the bullhorn, and so he starts talking to the guy, well, basically, to make a long story short, the guy's looking to commit suicide by cop, and so he hears the pastor's voice, and, uh, and at that, that's his cue, he, he begins to charge the police officer, and, um, and the pastor telling the story says basically that the sharpshooter was in proximity to where he was. He was in an alleyway between a couple of buildings. The sharpshooter was just right near him. And he's, he has a military weapon. He says that he shot. When he one pull of the trigger, three rounds went right into this guy's center mass, right into his chest. And he crumpled down dead right in front of him. And uh, the, just, you know, the gunshot and the deafening ringing and the whole thing, just horrible experience. Well, what happens then subsequently is that the people that this guy was holding hostage, they're having trouble processing and dealing with this. And the next day, uh, the same pastor was asked by this group of people to come and talk to them, kind of help them through this and sort of make sense of everything that's, that's transpired. And, you know, he just he prayed about it and he felt led to take him to, to Matthew chapter 7. Then there in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus told a parable of the wise and the foolish builders. You know, the, the, the one built his house founded on the rock. The other built his house founded on the sand. And, um, you know, it, it serves as a metaphor. This is, these parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. And, and Jesus telling this parable, it's a, it's a metaphor. The, the, the idea is that, well, the house represents your life. And, 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 and what are you building your life on? And, uh, you know, some people, they, you know, they choose a foundation of rock. Jesus in the, the parable is equating himself to this rock, that he's the firm foundation. And he says, you know, the, there's another foundation, and that's a foundation of sand, and that represents just anything else that you might build your life on. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, one built his house on the rock, one built his house on the sand. And uh, Jesus said of the one who built on the rock, he said this, he said, and the rain descended... The floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But for the one who built his house on the sand, Jesus said this. He said that the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. And as this pastor shared this story with these people, he basically said, listen, the sound you heard yesterday was the sound of a man falling certainly went on to share with them the 
truth of God's word and the hope that is in Jesus Christ. But the sound that we hear in 1 Samuel chapter 3 and into chapter 4, well, it's, it's the sound of a man falling. It's the sound of the collapse of the house of Eli. We'll pick it up in verse 11 of chapter 3. Where we read, then the Lord said to Samuel, and remember God has raised up a prophet who's going to listen to him. This is Samuel. He's still a young man at this point, uh, and uh, 12, 13 years old perhaps. And the Lord is now speaking to Samuel prophetically, and the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli and all that I, uh, all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. Verse 13, for I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. And so he says in verse 11, God speaking through the the prophet Samuel, I'm going to make both ears of everybody who hears this, I'm going to make it tingle. Now, you know when you sit wrong on the couch, maybe with your foot tucked underneath your leg, or you sleep wrong, you know, you'll have an extremity that will go to sleep. You you hate that feeling, right? Well, when it well and truly goes to sleep, you don't feel anything. It's just flat numb. You feel nothing. I remember watching a video uh, previous, it was on America's Home Videos or something like that, and the guy had been, his foot went asleep and he got up to walk and he just fell flat on his face because he had no feeling at all in his leg. Well, what happens is as the circulation begins to return, what's it begin to do? It begins to tingle. It goes on fire. Don't you hate that sensation? You can't stand it, right? Well, that, that tingling, that's when it begins to wake up. And that's the idea here. This is what God is saying. He's basically saying, look, uh, the people of Israel, they're asleep. Their ears are asleep, but they're going to wake up. And uh, the idea is, why are they going to wake up? Well, God's going to judge sin. And uh, and when God judges sin, basically, he says, this is going to wake them up. Paul told the uh, Galatians, he said, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And I want you to notice in verse 13 that God judges two very distinct types of sin. He says, there, he says I will judge Eli for the iniquity that he knows. And then he says, also, I will judge Hophni and Phinehas for their vile behavior. In other words, what happens here is that we see God judges the sins of commission as well as the, the sins of omission. He judges them equally. Now, we understand the sins of commission. This is, this is what we more naturally think about when we think about sins. We think about, you know, what you do. You lied, you stole, you cheated. These are sins of commission. You committed these acts. Sins of omission, we don't readily think about, but, but they're equally as, as vile to the Lord. Sins of omissions. This is what you failed to do that you, sh- excuse me, that you should have done. You know, you, you failed to believe, you failed to act, you failed to obey. A good example of this is the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells. And here in this parable, basically, you got a guy, he's been beaten, and he's bloody, and he's sitting at the side of the road, and, and, and two guys walk by, see him beaten and bloody, do absolutely nothing to help him. And then a Samaritan walks by. He sees the condition of the man. He stops and and he does something to help. James 4.17 tells us this, To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. And what I want you to see is that God sees both categories as sin equally. He says there in verse 14, Therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that their sin shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. And, and the idea here, look, God is merciful. 
God is gracious. He's loving. He is long-suffering. Uh, the, the psalmist declares the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Paul told Timothy, God our Savior desires that all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Listen, the Bible says that God's thoughts towards us are more than the sand in all the seashores. The Bible tells us that, that, that God, his thoughts towards us are to give us a future and a hope. This is God's heart of love for us. But at some point, listen, at some point God has to judge sin. Yeah, I'll have people talk to me, you know, they'll say, oh, you know, how can a loving God send somebody to hell? I'm like, listen, you don't understand God. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. The Bible says that God desires that none should perish, but that all should have everlasting life. Nicodemus came to Jesus, and Jesus told him, listen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And then he went on to tell him, look, God didn't send me here because he wants to condemn the world, but he sent me here that through me the world might have life. That's a paraphrase, but that's what Jesus was saying to him. The heart is, listen, God does not want anyone to go to hell. And hell wasn't even created for man anyway. It was created for the fallen angels, but for us, for those that he gave life and that he breathed life into, that he's made in the image of God and that he's lovingly given a choice to, if we reject him, he's got nowhere else for us to go. Because we either receive him by faith, we either confess and and admit to the fact The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. The Bible says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it is the heart of God to save us and and he does not want to send anyone to hell, but if you refuse the only atonement that has been made for your sin, to believe upon Jesus Christ who came to die for your sin in your place, who suffered, died, was buried, who rose again on the third day, conquering sin and death. And the Bible says if we place our hope in him, we will never perish. We will have everlasting life. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then to face judgment. That's a physical death, but we're talking about your spiritual being, which is going to live forever. And the question isn't, are you going to live forever? You will, spiritually speaking. The question is, where are you going to live forever? And God desires that no one should live forever in the torment of hell. But if you reject Jesus Christ, there there ain't no other place. It's the only place that you can go. And so it's not that a loving God sends somebody to hell. It's that a loving God did everything he could to redeem us. And if you reject that, there's nothing else he can do. And we, in effect, send ourselves to hell if we reject the only atonement for our sins. That's in Jesus Christ. And so the heart of God is a heart of love. It's a heart of compassion. It's a heart of long-suffering because he wants you to get it. He wants you to come around. And I think about my sinful days, and I think about my testimony, and I think about my struggles with alcohol when I was younger, and, and all of the stuff that I have so much regrets for. And I'm so glad that God was patient with me, that he gave me time to repent, And so this is the heart of our God, but at some point, listen, at some point, he has to judge sin. He has to. The writer of Hebrews told us this, he says, if we deliberately continue sinning after we've received knowledge of the truth, there's no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. Now, I I want to talk about this for a minute because, listen, Verse 14 here seems to indicate that there's sort of an attitude going on. If you look there in verse 14, it says, God says, And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli, the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. That means it was atoned for by offering and by sacrifice for a period of time. And it seems to kind of convey that there's this, just this sort of attitude that's going on with Eli and that's going on with his sons that basically says, you know what, God will forgive it. Just make an offering for that. You know, it's, it's cool. You know, it just, just make an offering for that. 
it reminds me of the guy walking down the street with his girlfriend and, and she sees a, you know, a fur in a, in a store. She's like, I want it. And he picks up a brick and throws it through the window. He's like, here you go, baby. A little while down, you know, she sees a color television. He picks up a brick. He throws it through the window. Here you go, sweetheart. They get a little while down. She sees a dress. She goes, oh, I want that dress. He goes, what do you think I am, made of bricks? All right, it's a bad joke. But here's the deal. We sometimes we have this attitude just like Hophni and Phineas, the sons of Eli had. We have this attitude like Eli had, where our attitude basically says, you know what? Uh, God will forgive me. God will forgive me. And so then there's just this, this way that I live my life where I'm just like, you know, grace, grace, grace. But you know, the 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 the, the thing is is that I'm not living like there really is a God who loves me and has gave his life for me. I'm living like I got a genie in a bottle and I got three wishes and I can just, you know, whatever. Hey, cover that genie. Hey, cover that genie. And I'm going to live like hell, but I'm going to go to heaven, you know? Paul talked about this in, in the book that he wrote to the Romans, in Romans chapter 6. He says, well, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Is that the attitude? Is that like, hey, you know what? My sin's covered, and I could just have an atonement, a sacrifice for this. But it, but it, it doesn't translate to the fact that I say, you know what? God does say in his word to obey is better than sacrifice. So the, the issue here for us, and I mean, you know, he's going to say that. We'll get there. We'll see in, in later on in, in the book of Samuel how... You know, Saul is disobedient to God and, and God tells him to do something and he doesn't do it and he tells him to, to destroy all of these animals and all and not to take any for himself and, and all of a sudden, you know, Samuel the prophet, now grown up, he shows up and there's all, you know, all the animals, the best of everything that Saul keeps for himself and he's like, what the heck are you doing here? What's with all this stuff? He goes, oh, you know what? I, 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 I obeyed the Lord. I did what he told me to do. He's like, well, then what, what do I hear? What's this bleeding of sheep that I hear? Because, you know, I'm hearing the, the, the animals that you should have killed because God told you not to take any of them for yourself. And there they are. And you took all of them for yourself. And he's like, oh, I took them so I could sacrifice them to God. And this is when the prophet says to him, no, oh, no, no, to God, obedience is better than sacrifice. And so what we see here is we, there's just sort of this attitude of, hey, I can live, you know, whatever way I want to and my sacrifice is going to cover it. Turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 2 real quick. Ephesians chapter 2, pick it up in verse 1. Here's what Paul says to the Ephesians. He says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So he's writing to believers in Ephesus and he's saying, look, you you know, you used to be dead, but he made you alive in Christ. He says, verse 2, in in which you once walked. He's going to talk about their old sinful nature. He says, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Paul's talking about three forces at work here in the world, in the life of of unbelievers. And really, they're forces that are constantly at work in the world. Regardless of whether you're a believer or not a believer, you're going to face these forces that are at work. But basically, he's saying, look, we all used to be, before we were saved, we were given over to these things. And so he talks about the course of the world and the prince of the power of the air and the lust of the flesh. And talking about the course of the world, the idea is that there's a river, there's a current, there's a flow to the world. And and the world just follows that flow. You know, it's like, you know, you're at a river, you toss something in, it goes. It's just going to go with the course. It's just going to go with the flow. And Paul says that the spiritually dead person walks according to the current of the world. Now, another force at work that's perpetuating spiritual death is the prince of the power of the air. Paul talks about that. And you know, the Bible says that when Satan fell, a third of the angels fell with him. This is the power of the air. 
Paul will say later in the book of Ephesians, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That there is a spiritual battle. I tell people in counseling all the time, look, there's, you're dealing with 200% truth every single day. You've got the 100% of the physical reality that you're dealing with, and right behind it, you've got the unseen spiritual reality, 100% of that that you're dealing with as well. You've got to recognize that it's both and. It's not either or. And we have a tendency to see you know, the guy I'm dealing with, and I'm mad at him, and I'll tell you in the physical all the reasons why I'm angry with him. And what he's done is wrong. But what I fail to realize in that moment and in the exercise of my anger is that there's a whole spiritual realm right behind it. We don't recognize that it's the enemy that's at work. And this is what Paul's talking about. Prince of the power of the air. He says this is the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. That word works, it literally means energizes. And what Paul is saying is that the unregenerate person, the person who hasn't surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the person who, who is just living in the world in the flesh, well, that spiritually dead person is energized by the power of the air, by the demonic realm. And then he says there's this third force at work that's perpetuating spiritual death, and this is the lust of our flesh. And Paul says this includes the desires of the flesh and of the mind. In other words, our thoughts and our feelings. Mark's gospel says this, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within Jesus says, and they defile a man. And I want you to notice that, that Paul says here in, in Ephesians ch- chapter 2, verse 2, that we once, walked, we once walked according to these forces. And know what that means when it says according to? It, it's the idea of being suppressed or being overridden or being dominated by. And here's the irony. The person who lives in the world who won't surrender to the life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, they think they're free. When really they are suppressed, they're dominated, and they're enslaved by sin. Here's my question for you. Are you, does that typify your life? Are you enslaved to sin today? See, because the big idea here is that this is supposed to be in the past tense for the believer. This is, this is what, what Paul says, he says, in, in which you once walked. That's a past tense term. And see, like Eli, if you call yourself a child of God, but you're perpetually living like hell, then the, the issue is, man, hey, sins of omission, sins of commission. This is the, 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 the pattern of my life. At some point, you have to ask, is he Lord or not? Because listen, the Bible says that even the, believe, the demons believe and tremble. They believe that God is, I mean, they believe God's real. They tremble at God. Why aren't they saved? Because they won't confess him as Lord. They won't give him rule and reign. Now, let me make this clear. There's a, there's a difference between struggling against sin and of living your life dominated and enslaved by sin. Okay? I'm not saying that if you struggle with sin, I'm not saying that if you, that if you struggle to, to walk obediently to the Lord, you know, speaking of the course and flow in this world, if your life is a perpetual, I'm striving to swim upstream. I'm not, and, and I'm talking about two distinctly different things here. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm not talking about I'm going to swim upstream and I'm going to earn my salvation. The Bible says you can't do that. Because there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so there's nothing that you can do to make yourself right in the eyes of God. All you can do is prevail upon God and the work that he's already done for you on the cross for your sin in your place. So you can't earn that. But having received Christ by faith, now there is a walk of obedience that God calls us to. And this is the process. It's a, it's a, it's a big biblical word there, you know, Christian word that we use. It's called sanctification. And it's just the process of growing in our relationship with God. That's what sanctification is. And so I, I, I'm saying there's a difference between working out your sanctification. The Bible talks about work out, Paul said it, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And that's what we're called to do. And there's a process of, of working. 
to, to honor the Lord. And, 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 and so, so I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the person who, who is completely dominated and enslaved by sin, who Jesus Christ is not Lord in their life. So back in 1 Samuel, what God says to Samuel about Eli and about his sons is, time's up. I'm all done. Everybody out of the pool. I, 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 I've, I've stand all, stands all I can stand and I can't stands no more, you know? And God's like, this is it. I've given him all the time I can give him. And so we move now from the collapse of the house of Eli. We're going to see that carried out, but now we're going to move to the capturing of the Ark of the Covenant. We continue now, chapter 3, verse 15. So Samuel lay down until morning. And he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. You think? God just told Samuel, look, here's what's happening to Eli, and I'll give you the early edition. I'm going to tell you everything that I'm going to do. Now, he's already spoken through another prophet, a nameless prophet, who went to Eli and gave him this prophecy as well. God's just making sure Eli knows, hey, you know what? You continued and you continued and you continued in this course of resistance and rebellion against me. You honored your sons more than me. We're all done here. And then verse 16, Eli called Samuel and he said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, here I am. And he said, what is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. Now, that's completely ironic that he should say that because what did Eli in effect do with his sons when he let them continue on in their sin? He hid the word of God from them. I mean, he's, he's telling Samuel, look, don't you dare do what I did to my sons. That's basically what he's saying. In verse 18 now, then Samuel told him everything, and he had nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And so Samuel grew, uh, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. In other words, all of his prophecies came true. Verse 20, and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Then, verse 21, the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, and the word of Samuel came uh, to all Israel. Now, because the word of Samuel comes to all Israel, you might think, oh, the word came and now they're going to listen and they're going to obey it. That, that's not happening yet. There's new leadership that's coming. There's change that's going to come to the nation. Uh, but right now, they're, they're still dealing with their old mindset. And so the word of the Lord comes to them, certainly through Samuel. But as we're going to see now, uh, there's still some sinful behavior to deal with. Now, Israel, continuing at chapter 4, verse 1, uh, uh, second half of that verse, now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped, uh, encamped in Aphek. This is basically about 23 miles west of Shiloh, just for those of you that are interested in that kind of stuff. So they're about, you know, 23 miles away. Um, and then, verse 2, the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when, verse 3, the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? That is an excellent question to ask, why on earth did this happen? Now, what I want you to see here is that no sooner does God begin to reveal himself to the nation of Israel through the prophet Samuel that the enemy shows up to attack. You see that? I mean, here God reveals himself. It says in verse 21 of, of chapter 3, then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1 begins, And the word of, the Sam, of Samuel came to all Israel. The word of God is being revealed. And now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. It always works this way, folks. Always works this way. Whenever you desire 
to draw near to God, whenever God begins to speak to you, guess who's on the doorstep? Satan is right there. When you endeavor, when you sit down, when you say, you know what, I'm going to read the Bible today. And your phone starts blowing up, your kids melt down, you know, the enemy comes against you, he does not want you in the word, does he? Absolutely not. And so this attack comes, man, when, when we're going to draw near to, go, to God. Listen, there is an enemy that wants you dead. Absolutely, there is an enemy, and he always attacks the word. And so you, here you have the Philistines, and the Philistines are a picture of Satan. And the Philistines now are coming against, they're attacking Israel. Interesting thing, by the way, in terms of the history of the Philistines and as it pertains to modern day the Middle East and what's going on. The Philistines, they were a seagoing people. They originated in the Aegean region of modern day Turkey and they invaded territory along the Mediterranean coast, including modern Palestine. As a matter of fact, uh, the, the name Palestine actually comes from the word Philistine. So, so what's happened today, something's never changed. When, when Israel today is dealing with the Palestinians and having war with the Palestinians, this is a continuation of something that's been happening for thousands and thousands of years. And, and I would just point out, by the way, that the Philistines, the Palestinians... They came from somewhere else. They invaded this area. They wanted to take over. They want to say, hey, this is our home and we own this. No, no, they came trying to conquer and take over lands. They've been attacking Jerusalem and Israel. They've been attacking them for thousands of years. Anyway, enough of the history. This is what's going on. But the point is, is that the Philistines are attacking Israel. God's beginning to show up and do a work there. And the enemy doesn't like it and he's going to attack. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12, he's like, hey, you're not supposed to think it's strange when, you know, fiery trials start coming against you. It's not like, oh man, what, what's weird? I'm getting attacked. He's like, no, no, no. If you're going you're gonna to draw near to God, you expect it. There's a war. The moment you decide I'm going to start listening to God, you have a battle on your hands. And you have to commit to the battle. You just need to understand, hey, count on it. I'll have people, oftentimes, you know, God, they'll come forward, things will start happening in their life, and a lot of times, people think of, you know, their relationship with God, like if I'm going to get saved, they think it's like a country western record if you play it backwards, you know, you get your car back, and you get your wife back, and you get your dog back, and, you know, and people think, oh, that's what Christianity is all about. No, wait, baby, when you're going in the course of this world, and you're going with the flow, you're just going to go, right? But if you endeavor that I'm going to walk against the course of this world... Now you're going to have a head-on collision with the enemy. That's just, that's just the deal here. Now, Romans 8.28, probably one of the most often quoted scriptures in the, in the New Testament. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according uh, to his purpose, right? And, and so the, the idea, man, what this is, this is called providence, Okay, it's been said that providence is when the hand of God is in the glove of human events. And so the, the issue here is that several instances in the Bible, we see God providentially using the enemy and using the enemy's attacks to do a work uh, in the life of his people and actually steer and course correct the life of his people to accomplish great things through the life of his people. And so God is using, strategically, these attacks. God, you know, the, the people, the enemy, means it for evil, but God's going to engineer it and use it for good. We see it in Genesis, where God used Joseph's hateful brother. We see it, brothers, we see it in Daniel, when, when God uses the nation of Babylon to take the, the nation of Israel captive because they're in disobedience and they need a spanking, and God uses that. We see it here in 1 Samuel as he uses the Philistines. We see it in the book of Acts when, you know, uh, the, Saul, who would become the Apostle Paul and write two-thirds of the New Testament, but when he was still Saul and persecuting and killing Christians, we see God using that for his good. God had told the Christians, look, you're going to be witnesses of me. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And you get several chapters into the book of Acts, which reflects years and years, and they're still in Jerusalem. They have, the church hasn't gone out. And God allows persecution to come against the church in Jerusalem. And then what do we see the very next thing? They were scattered. And then it tells us that they began to go in the regions, uh, Samaria and, and, you know, and, and uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and so on. And they begin to go out. 
accomplishing God's word. God uses adversity. He uses enemies to accomplish his sovereign work. Ultimately, the, the greatest example we see of that is in the Gospels themselves. Jesus Christ crucified by really Satan tempting and doing the work to, 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 to snuff out the Messiah. But God allows it, in fact, uses it for his strategic purposes. It was prophesied. You know, the, 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 the woman is going to have a child and there's going to be a serpent and he says, you know, he's going to strike his heel, but he will crush his head. And the idea is that the serpent striking the heel of the Messiah was Jesus being crucified, but Jesus in suffering, dying for our sins and then raising again on the third day, that was the crushing of Satan's head and de- defeating sin and death. And so the thing is, is that we see several instances where God providentially uses the enemy to accomplish his will, and it's the exact same thing here. God's providentially using these Philistines to accomplish his sovereign will in the nation of Israel and to bring about the things that he said had to be brought about. And again, these, all these examples, they just serve to underscore that God is large and in charge. It's large and in charge. King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel actually came to find that out. He, he came to come to Jesus' moment where he recognized, you know what? God is sovereign, and he, he's sovereign over the affairs of men. Listen to what he said. He says, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Because he's large and in charge. The point being, man, God's going to use whatever means are at his disposal to accomplish his will. And so even though here we're going to see the the Philistines come against the Israelites and we're going to see great defeat at the hands of the Philistines, look, all is not lost. God is still on the throne and in fact, he's he's using this to accomplish his purposes. Now, don't miss what happens next. Look there in in verse 3 of chapter 4. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Right? Why has God done this? Now, defeat ought always to bring into the mind of the child of God this question of why. Because we haven't been called to live a life of defeat, have we? No, we've been called to live a life of victory. And so if you experience defeat in your life, it ought always cause you to ask the question, why? Because God uses the enemy to accomplish his purposes. And so if God allows us to be defeated by the enemy, it should drive us to the place where we sit up and take notice and we ask this question, hey, why, God? Why is this going on? And had the Israelites taken the time to really ponder their own question, they asked the question, why? If they had taken the time to really ponder that question, they would have remembered God's words to them through Moses. See, because here's the thing. They're wondering, why were we defeated? Because God promised us victory. And, and, and God certainly did. Through, the, 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 through Moses, he said this in the book of Deuteronomy. He said, now it shall come to pass if you, now he's speaking to the nation of Israel, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord, your God, to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. Does that sound like defeat to you? Absolutely not. That's victory. This is the promise of God. And so they're right to go, well, gosh, well, then if God promised us that, why are we defeated? Well, a few verses later, God says this. He says, but it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Now, then you continue reading there. I won't put it on the screen, but you read the next several verses and you see all of the curses that God says are going to happen if they disobey God. And basically, he talks about curses on their kids, on their crops, on their climate, on their cattle, on their health, on their endeavors. He says all these things are going to be cursed. And then he adds this in verse 25 of Deuteronomy chapter 28. He says, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. Here it is. You're going to be disobedient to me? You're going to thumb your nose at me? 
I'm going to cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. Hey, this is super important, man. See, if you're licking your wounds today, if you have wounds of defeat today, why is an excellent question for you to ask? Man, why, God? Now, what I want you to notice here, they ask the question, but they don't wait for an answer. Man, it's so often like us. They ask the question, but they don't wait for the answer. Instead, what do they do? They, they say, well, why are we defeated? Well, let's engineer a solution. Anybody else guilty of that? I'm defeated. I'm going to engineer my own solution here. And so we continue. Why have we been defeated today by the Philistines? Verse, verse 3, the middle of it there. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Right, it's a box inside it, the Ten Commandments. On top of the ark, part of the ark box, there was the mercy seat. It represented the presence of God. It wasn't unusual. I mean, they'd taken it into battle before. The army that carries the ark, you know, is, 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 you know, powerful and all. In the sense that they're with God and they're in his presence. Hold that thought. That's really important. So they're talking about the, the, the ark of the covenant. They're like, let's go get it. Let's bring that thing here. Uh, and, and so they say that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. You see that? you see the inflection there? They're not saying, hey, it's, it's not about the presence of God, which is what the ark is really supposed to reflect. Their attitude is, it's about the box. It's about the thing. It's about the hardware. It's about the it. It's not about the him. And so, verse 4, the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. Now, listen, that, that there, that's the leading of the Lord. That's the Holy Spirit giving a little subtle commentary there because the Israelites are going, it, it, it. And he says, you know, through the Holy Spirit of God as these words are penned, it's not it, it's the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. That's the idea that God's trying to convey, this subtle timing of God saying, yeah, it, it, it. Oh, the it, you mean the, the presence of the Lord? You mean the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim? Is that who the it is that you're talking about? I think not. That's not who you're talking about. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, you know, get that. I mean, we know Hophni and Phinehas. We've talked about them. They got, they got Guido and Knuckles positioned there at the temple to shake everybody down when they come. Hophni and Phinehas are the guys that are sleeping around. They're, they're causing the women who are serving God to, to, to go into sexual sin. And these guys are going to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. That's just, that's shameful. That's shameful. That's, that's, that's like, you know, somebody, you know, kills your, your, your dad and then they want to be pallbearers at his funeral, you know? Verse 5, And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the, or, that the earth shook. Yay, hooray, we're going to be victorious now. And now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. And so the Philistines were afraid for they said, God has come into the camp. Listen, it's a bad day when your enemies recognize that it's God who is in camp and you are thinking it's the it. If the box is here, the box is here, and the enemies go, oh my gosh, it's God, right? That's a bad day when they're more spiritual than you. They say, woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, verse 8, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods, and they don't have a, a solid uh, theology and theological understanding of, of the one true and living God, but they say these are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that... Uh, you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. Verse 10, and so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. Why? Well, because they got a box. It's going to save us. They're not looking to the, to, to, to the Lord to save them. 
They're looking to, to, to the religion to save them. It's all about the hardware. It's not about the heart. And so they were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of, the, of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, verse 11, and also the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died, just as God said they would in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Verse 12, and then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day, and he came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And now when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, what does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli. Verse 15, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. That's why he couldn't be there in town. That's why he's waiting to hear news of what's going on. Verse 16, then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, what happened, my son? And so the messenger answered and he said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has been a great slaughter among the people. And also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And then, verse 18, it happened, when he made mention of the ark of God, that Eli fell off the seat backwards by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel 40 years. Verse 19, and now his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was with child, due to be delivered, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, so she died in childbirth, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. And then she named the child Ichabod, which means the glory has departed, that's what the name means, saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So, the ark of the covenant Critically important. The idea here, it's, it's the most important piece of furniture in the tabernacle. It resided in the Holy of Holies. Inside it were the two ta- stone tablets that Moses carried down off the Mount of, of Sinai, the, the Ten Commandments, inside this ark. And on top of it, the mercy seat where God's presence dwell. And this was where God spoke to his people through the high priest. In the Holy of Holies where he would go once a year to, to, to go before God. And the people, they thought the ark would save them. And when they were defeated, when they had 3,000 of their guys get killed and they regrouped and they're like, what on earth happened? And they didn't wait for God to tell them what was going on. They engineered their own solution because what happened was they rightly assumed that, well, God wasn't with us in battle. And so we're going to fix that. We're going to bring the ark of the covenant. And they wrongly assumed, again, that they could fix it with religious hardware. But the problem, problem was in their heart. How do we apply this to us today? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? I mean, we have so many times, we, we have this attitude of, hey, hey, Jesus is my homeboy. And, you know, I, I got God in the trunk. And, uh, and you know, there, when, I get, when I get into a little problem in my life, I get a little flat, spiritually speaking, I'll pull over, I'll pull Jesus out of the trunk. And then when I'm all done, hey, back in the trunk, Jesus... As my, you know, my attitude so often is that, ah, you know, it's, it's just the it. When it, when I get in trouble, it'll help me. But their hearts weren't with God. God wasn't with them. So what do we do with this now as we close? Well, I got a few questions for you to think about. First question Are you trusting in religion or are you trusting in relationship with God to save you? 
Second question, are you in a season of defeat right now? And, and again, if you're in a season of defeat, hey, what are, you, what are you looking to? Are you seeking to understand why God has allowed you to be in this season of defeat? Or are you in this season of defeat and you're, you're busy focusing on a solution? You're going to engineer a solution to the defeat that you're in. Hey, I know what I'll do. Third question, are, are there sins of omission in your life? Things you failed to do. Things that you need to correct. And have you guys take a walk with that this week, and I'll close on this note. The worst sin of omission in anybody's life is that they reject Jesus Christ. The Son of God who came to pay the penalty for your sins and for mine. And, and I would be remiss as we close in prayer and with a message like this, if I don't make darn good and sure for every one of you here that you are trusting in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. Listen, if you've never surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, heaven and hell hang in the balance. And it's entirely in your court. God has made the way for you to have a right relationship with, with him, but the decision is yours. He's not going to force himself on you. It's your choice. And I would plead with you today, because God says in his word, see, I set before you today life and death, blessings and cursings. And then he begs us, choose life. And I would beg you, choose life today. If you've never surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, make today the day that you do that. And a variant of that is this, that I've met many people who make uh, a, a wrong assumption And they think that they have a saving faith in Christ, but when you really start talking about what are you placing your faith in, it comes back to a place where they say, well, I hope my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. And they talk about, oh, I believe in Jesus, but really what comes down to their faith is if I'm a good person, then God will save me. You can be the best person that ever lived, but you're not Christ. And so your good works will never outweigh your bad works. There's one way for you to come to know the Lord in a saving way, and that's for you to confess, I'm a sinner, you're the Savior, help me, Lord, I prevail upon your grace and your grace alone.